Hey guys, it's Tony. I'm here to talk to you about Awaken Conference. Now, Awaken is a young adult gathering in Charlotte, North Carolina from January 31st to February 2nd, 2020. And it's meant to help you recharge your spiritual life and connect with a community that you can grow your faith alongside. Now, this year's presenters include a killer lineup with Caleb Isley of Humans of Adventism and, of course, a friend of the podcast. He's been on a few episodes. Kim Cove, a licensed counselor, and Randy Ban, the creative producer at Nike World Headquarters. The keynotes will be brought by Ben Lundquist of the Rise and Lead podcast, uh, a good friend of mine and an amazing speaker. Trust me, guys, you will not want to miss out. And Absurdity will be there. So me and Becker, uh, you get, get to see us if you come out. Uh, would love to come and talk to you. We absolutely think that this is something you're going to want to come and see. Speaking of, if you enter the code Absurdity at awakennc.com, that's Absurdity, A-B-S-U-R-D-I-T-Y, at awakennc.com, you're going to get a 10% discount. We'd love to see you there. This is absolutely something that we support, and we think that Awaken is a part of the growing church movement that we want to see moving forward. Once again, if you enter code absurdity at awakennc.com, you'll get a 10% discount off the initial price. Love to see you guys there. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Absurdity, where we explore all things absurd in religion, culture, and society. Today, I am incredibly excited. Um, out of the kindness of his heart uh, and the availability of his schedule, we have an awesome guest joining us today, Andre Henry. And you may have heard that name before in episode 107, where we talked about uh, all of the uh, kind of the culture of toxicity and racism that existed within Relevant uh, magazine and some of the things that have been going on there. Andre is the writer of the article that we heavily referenced and kind of walked through in that episode, and he has agreed to come on. So, Andre, thank you so much for for coming on the podcast, man. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I I'm excited for this conversation, and uh, just for um, just kind of for for my listeners to to so you guys understand this. Um, the relevant article may be a springboard for all of this, but it is not necessarily the reason or not what we're talking about today. I think we're, I think both Andre and I have agreed that we're kind of beyond the scope of what that was. And we're moving into kind of a, a broader conversation um, that really everything, it, everything involved in that was kind of symptomatic of. Um, so yeah, I am, uh, I'm excited for where this conversation is going to go. There are some questions that I'm going to be asking that I've been wanting to ask someone for a while and, and haven't even had the opportunity <laughs> to myself. So um, this yeah. is this is hopefully going to be something that's highly educational um, in a way that is um, in a way that's also kind of encouraging or uplifting as we talk about this. And and I fully understand that in the process of restoration and racial justice and really kind of social equality in general, um, some of that restorative conversation does require us getting a little uncomfortable. So I'm totally game for it. Um, so Andre, you host a podcast, you do a whole bunch of stuff, really. Um, so I'm going to let you kind of, uh, you know, tell us about your podcast, tell us about anything that you want to kind of promote. Yeah, well, I think the, probably the centerpiece of what I'm doing right now is my email list called Hope and Heart Pills, which is 
Um, it's a, it's like, what is it? It's an email list. I send out an email every Saturday, or at least I try to send it out Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. I know that well. <laughs> Sometimes it comes out Sunday, but uh, mostly Saturday morning. And it's just like bite-sized chunks about anti-racism and social change. So I've been really studying nonviolent movements and, and really been pursuing the question, how, how do we change the world? You know, yeah. how do we create a, a society where racism is no longer the blueprint and our common sense? And so I do that. That is also where, you know, if people are interested in my podcast, which is, has the same name, Hope and Hard Pills, we send out the new episodes, um, new articles that I've written. Um, and then also not just my stuff, but we send out um, articles that have to do with race and social change as well. So it's kind of like a curated list, somewhere between five to eight articles that, you know, people could peruse through and uh, or sometimes other podcast episodes too of other podcasts that we like or videos, just content so that people who want to know about racism and want to know, want some practical insight on what they can do to fight it. Okay. Yeah. That's a good resource. Yeah. Awesome. And um, where can they, where can they actually just find that email list or find all of that? Yeah. The easiest place to find that is on my website, andrerhenry.com. Cool. And so, uh, as is tradition on, I think, every podcast in existence, uh, there'll be links in the show notes. <laughs> so you can easily go there and find them. So, uh, Andre, as we kind of jump into this, how did you go from, like, I guess, a, a ordinary person to being so passionately involved in kind of racial justice and social change? And I don't mean ordinary like you're suddenly not ordinary now, but yeah. just kind of like it's not the forefront of your mind. This isn't you know, this isn't the thing that is your, that you're dedicating your platform to necessarily, or was it always? For sure. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you added that note, you know, saying like, not that I'm not ordinary. Um, because, <laughs> not because not I think you're saying I'm weird, but because <laughs> I do think that, I do think that people have like this idea that, you know, an activist like is like a special class of person or something like that. And so we kind of draw this line in the sand and go, well, someone like Andre, like he's an activist and I'm not, you know, mm. and um, I actually don't want to be that in that category, you know, of like a non-normal person. Like I, I was provoked to start writing and talking about racism more often. It wasn't like I never did. Like I, I have my whole life, but when it felt like, I need to say so. Um, I need to say something as often as possible, like every day mm. to as many people as possible was when I saw Philando Castile um, die on Facebook Live in the summer of 2016. Mm. Um, something felt very personal about his death. Um, he was murdered by a police officer. And that was just a watershed moment for me where I made some commitments to myself and said, I'm not going to, one, allow the news cycle to determine when I talk about racism, because I felt like people really felt like we were okay, racial justice wise, as long as the news was not um, reporting on something, you know, 
overt and racist. So people really thought that like racism goes away unless there's like a major news story about it. And so I made that commitment to myself. And ever since then, I've been talking about racism every day. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, um, it's interesting you say 2016 too. That was actually when absurdity was started and it was started oh. out of a, um, I started this out of kind of a, a s- sort of similar circumstance in that. Um, so I'm from Orlando, Florida. Um, mm-hmm. And it was right after the pulse shooting. And okay, yes. um, so I'm from a, um, on, on the spectrum of denominations, a conservative denomination, uh, Seventh-day Adventist. And um, one of the things, you know, we're very, the, the denomination as a whole, very traditional on views regarding LGBTQ plus. Um, and I remember the day after um, the day after the pulse shooting, I started to see friends of mine post on Facebook, like I was going to be there last night. And for whatever reason I didn't, or I was too tired or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that was both a, how I realized that how close to death they were, but B um, that's actually how I learned a lot of them were LGBTQ plus. Like I didn't know. And mm-hmm. I realized I was pastoring in a small town in South Carolina and there wasn't a lot physically that I could, I felt I could do, but over the years of, I was pastoring. So speaking at different churches and um, in college, I traveled a lot and spoke. I had built kind of like a little following, not anything significant necessarily, but I said, Mm -hmm. what can I do with the resources I have now with where I am to use my voice to do something positive? And that was exactly why I started that and, uh, or started this whole thing. And it was right around the same time. It was kind of this, this same dissatisfaction with the way we're talking about things now and finding, figuring out a way to do this better. Um, and more yeah. effectively. So that's, I didn't realize that those two things were so close. Um, mm-hmm. and it's, what's wild to me is 2016 feels like it's so long ago. Really? Yeah. I mean, it does feel like it, it does feel like a long time ago, but I feel like so much happened that year. Yeah. You know, it was like a watershed moment on different levels for everyone. Yes. You know, like if you were not <laughs> like, if, if you were not moved to to like fight for something by the end of 2016, like by the by by mid by mid 2016, yeah. then it was going to happen in the fall, right? Like yeah. if it weren't in January, it was going to be in the summer. If it weren't in the summer, it's going to be in the fall because so much stuff happened that year. Yeah, I 100 percent agree. Um, and and I and I do love that you you kind of the way that you kind of handle all of this and the way that you write about it, the way you talk about it. Um, it's been really cool for me to see for the same, for the same reason we talked about the fact that, you know, you are an ordinary or like a normal person, like activism in this way, being anti-racist being, um, and, and working towards social change, like that should just be normal to some extent, you know, like that's, I think that's the everyone. So I think some people feel like they have to completely flip up their entire life structure in order to right. be an advocate and be an activist. But really it's just, uh, you know, it does come down to, personal conversations and um, you know, and just how you behave as a human being. It has nothing to do with, I mean, it does have stuff to do with the rest of it, but you don't have to quit your job and do a million things. Right. Well, like I haven't, you know, I have a full time, I've had a full time job this whole time. And it's funny because like, sometimes people will say things like, okay, so for instance, someone, um, I don't check all of the email that I get back from my email list anymore because you, you have, you don't know who's messaging you. Mm -hmm. So 
So now somebody screens my emails, which is unfortunate because that was one of the things that I loved about doing that email list is that the feedback would come directly to me and I could interact with people. But since people are mean, yeah, <laughs> yep, you can't get that directly to your email anymore. So anyway, before I did that, I remember somebody wrote me a message and this was right after the, the mass shooting in New Zealand at the mosque. And I really like, it was like Sunday morning after that happened. And I'm like really wrestling with whether or not it's my place to say anything about it. Mm. Um, And I realized like, well, first off, white nationalism and white supremacy is a global problem. So is anti-blackness. Islam is a faith that comes from Africa and comes from black and brown people. And I write an email list about (laughs) anti-racism. So not only is it my place to write about it, it's like it would it would be wrong for me not to. So I did. I got an email back from someone who was like, well, can you explain, you know, the mass killings of Christians in Nigeria or something like that? Some kind of what about ism. And I wrote back. And was like, well, this, this email, this is about race. It's not about religion. So no. Um, furthermore, I already explained to you what this meant. You know, not the Christian mass killings. And I, I explained, you know, like, you need to actually read the material that I'm sending to you. Mm, <laughs> like, yeah. um, because I work hard on putting that together. And their response was, well, not all of us get paid to talk about injustice all the time. And I'm like, I actually don't get paid to do this. <laughs> like, mm. I'm, I'm doing this with my spare time as a normal person because it's something that I feel like needs to be done. So uh, at the time, before I had more people helping me, I would spend all day Saturday. Well, not all day, but like a good five hours on Saturday, like collecting content that I was going to share the next week or that I thought was good and, you know, making mm. hard pill memes and stuff like that, you know? So anyway, just to say like, yeah, like it, it is something that is, it's a labor of love. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's, I very much identify with that um, <laughs> from the pod, from this podcast perspective anyway. Yeah. Um, so one of the reasons I, I really wanted to, to talk with you specifically is um, I, I think that um, you have some very kind of pointed critique that I think is also like is constructive in nature. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that you that I've, I've seen you talk at length about is is um, kind of traditionally white organizations or institutions and some of the ways, and, and this was, you know, this was a theme in the relevant article, but how a lot of companies will either use kind of the black struggle or the, the struggles of um, people of color in general as a way to build their own brand identity and, mm-hmm. and brand value. And mm-hmm. um, so I guess what I, what I really want to dive into today is, is some of the, yeah. the practical things that those institutions can do to, to you know, reverse that course. Um, and so I, I guess the first question is, you know, what, I guess, what do you see as 
kind of the problem or a problem within kind of traditionally white institutions? How would you even define all of that? Right. Like I want, I want someone who's listening to be able to say like, I'm a part, be able to identify if they're kind of a part of that. Yeah. Well, I think one thing is that we have to start with asking the right questions. Right. Hmm. So it seems like a lot of white leaders and white institutions are starting with bad questions, poor questions. One example, like a bad question is, you know, are we, do we have enough black people in our promo? Mm. It's not, it's not a terrible question, but there's a, there are better questions to ask than are we showing enough black and brown faces? Um, Mm -hmm. A question, a better question is, are we, are we serving our constituents that are black and brown well? That's a better question. A better question is, are we caring for black people in, in what we're doing right now? Um, remembering that care is an action word, it's a verb, right? And the reason I know that some people get uncomfortable with thinking like, am I caring about black people? Because you want to say, well, everyone deserves to be cared for, you know? So if I single out one group, then, (laughs) then, then am I not neglecting another? When the truth is that that actually is not how it works in society, because we live in a society that is organized by a racial hierarchy where no matter what you do, when you say people, um, white people are usually included in that group whenever you say people. Um, mm-hmm. And that's been historically so. But so when you say we need to make sure that that we need to make sure that what we're doing, like considers the marginalized, that it considers those who are affected most by these injustices and racist systems, that when we actually do that, we are being inclusive because we're bringing in the people that are usually excluded when we just talk about people, you know? Mm. So that's one thing I think is like, we need to ask the right questions. Um, And like you said, like I, I do try to be frank. And so if, if a company doesn't care about black and brown people, they should just be honest with themselves about that. You know, they are, right. you don't, you don't want to consider, you don't want to consider, consider how, you know, a black audience would hear this or receive that or what their needs are and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not going to say that's fine, but <laughs> it would be better I mean, they to have do the, that. They, I guess they have the right to do that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, if you don't want to cater to that audience, then you don't have to. Um, but what we tend to do, or I shouldn't say we, what, what white institutions tend to do is to say, we need to make sure that we don't appear racist. We need to make sure that we appear like we are um, with the times, that we're not backwards or whatever. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in order to do that, you know, they make sure that, okay, we need to make sure we have a black person in this picture. We need to make sure that we have, you know, that, all, that we have some names that don't sound like white names on these articles. or or whatever. So basically what I'm saying is that starting with the right question helps us to think about the way that we structure our, the organization and the decisions that you'll make. So I think that's yeah, one And thing. I think, yeah, <laughs> I think also that like, 
I think any hesitancy that you may have to answer that question or, you know, when you start, when you start asking better questions can actually tell you a lot about where your priorities are too. As you say, you know, yeah. are we valuing them well enough? And, and you might hesitate and think, well, oh, well, we might be excluding some or others or, oh, our donors might get upset at, at, at you know, this. Mm-hmm. And then you, the question then becomes like, then you, then you can use that and identify to say like, okay, so what do I care more about? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, cater, or, you know, caring for this constituency that I have or appeasing a donor or a potential donor, you know, that, that I think is, um, and, and, and that can tell you kind of where that can be a big sign for where, I guess, an institution's priorities would be. So yeah, I hundred percent right. agree with that. That's big. Another, um, another thing yeah, go is for it. like, like, and this is a practical thing. So you're asking, you need to ask the right questions. The other thing is like really listening, you know? One thing is that a lot of people that I speak to about this, you know, they'll have a conversation like this with me and say, okay, well, what should I look out for? And I'm like, well, actually, you need to be listening to people in your organization. If you're not, if you're not sitting down with women in your organization or people of color and saying, what, does it, what is it like to work here? What is it like to be here for you? You know, mm. without rebuttal, without, it's not an argument, it's your information gathering just active listening, you know, just listen to them, you know, that will tell you what things you need to do in your organization. I've talked to different churches and it's like, I've talked to different people, uh, people of color that have been to been in mostly white churches and they've talked about the things that they want are just for the pastor to talk about something that has to do with their uh, social reality, right? Like, Talk about racism, talk about sexism, talk about the immigration crisis, because there are people in your congregation for whom those things are more than abstract, abstract concepts. Those are that's 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 their life you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So I'll just I'll just I'll just stop like with that one point because I could keep going. But that point of like <laughs> just just that point of like, OK, you know, I talk to different I talk to different white leaders and they're like, well, it's almost like they're saying, well, I don't really know what, 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 what people are asking of me. And I'm like, that's because you're not listening. Because mm-hmm. if you would just sit down and listen to them, they would tell you. Now, I've seen, I've seen these different situations where contingencies of people of color, congregants of color, will talk to leaders in their church. I'm using church as an example, but this could be you know, any kind of organization yeah. and say, this is what we want from you. We want for you to preach about justice, right? And They'll, they'll come out of that conversation as though they don't understand what's happened. But the truth is that, no, you do understand because that sentence is very simple. You know, it's not a complicated, it's not a complex philosophical theory. Absolutely. But because of the fear of doing it, the fear of fulfilling that request or, or the internal like, the way that it might trigger that person individually as a leader, you know, there might be a, a, there might be layers of resistance to that. They make their resistance to the request as though it mystifies what is required, you know? Mm. So then, so then, then you just left with the choice of, do you really want to serve these people or not? Yeah. Man. So I think, 
Uh, Asking questions and listening. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, you're good, man. You could. Yeah. So ask the right questions. Listen to your people and you have to create. You have to create opportunities to listen. You know, you can do that in a survey. You can do that in a listening group. You can, you know, have lunch or coffee with someone and be a listener at Fuller, where I went to seminary. They say leadership begins with listening, you know, and then it's like, I think, and I won't take as long on this point, but I think that, I think that people really have to think about the fact that, um, collaboration means that your thing is going to be different. You know, like as a songwriter, I learned that if I want for a song to be a certain way and it has to be that way, I need to write that song by myself. Mm -hmm. I don't need to invite anybody else into the creative process because it's just not hospitable to say, hey, come write a song with me and then tell someone that you don't like any of their ideas, you know. Mm -hmm. But that is how we're tending to do like organizational life together, church life together, institutional life together is inviting black and brown people into spaces where they can never have any type of idea that might actually change that space in some way. And so, yeah, I think at some level institutions become just about preserving themselves. And yes. um, one thing that, you know, a lot of institutions that I struggle with in, in just I don't know how this, I've, I've been a Seventh-day Adventist my entire life, basically. And while I've been in a lot of other denominational churches, I don't know this to be true of cultures within them. But one thing that a lot of Adventists will do is they become very, very supportive of the ministries, you know, church things, whatever, schools that they grew up going to that they benefited from. And so they, they want to see, even if those ministries or churches are dying, they won't let them die because they still see the they still see some value in them based off of their experience 30 or 40 years ago. Mm. And and so it it they even it's not even just preserving the it's, sometimes it's not even the institution preserving itself but us trying to preserve whatever feeling of nostalgia um that we get when we think about that institution. Mm-hmm. And it 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 has been one of the most frustrating stumbling blocks I've seen in my own denomination's culture. Um it, it is a regular thing that I watch happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, and, and we want to preserve spaces a lot of times. So I've been reading, um, I mean, or I've been mentioning this study a lot from Glenn Bracy. Uh, he's a professor at Villanova and he talks about how like white institutional space is usually established to serve the interest of whites. And so white people are usually invested in not just preserving the institution, but also preserving the institution as their space where the same hierarchy that exists in society, where what white people want is always more important than what non-white people want is Mm. like, that is the rule of the space. And so in order to preserve that space, they have to keep on making that decision that what white people want is more important than black people want. And in trying to preserve the, the institution, they also are trying to preserve the institution in that state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, 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 I think that in a, if an institution or I guess an organization really does want to change, it does have to become <laughs> collaboration. Because you know, one mm-hmm. of the things that when I did encounter all the relevant stuff, one of the things that that really hit me was um, a a trap that I had fallen into on this podcast was you know we're. This is going to be, I think, episode 112. Maybe that changes, but 
Um, pretty sure this is going to release it as episode 112. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the mistakes that I made when I, I started this podcast with the, with the goal of amplifying the voices of others with whatever platform I had. Mm-hmm. And so I would seek, I, I think rightfully so, I would seek out the voices I, I thought would be um, the most kind of qualified to speak to something. Um, brought on mm-hmm. kind of abuse experts for abuse and brought on uh, black people to talk about some of the racial segregation in my own denomination and, and white supremacy in general. And then I, as I was uncovering more of this relevant stuff, one of the things that hit me in the face was the fact that I had pretty much only brought those voices on to talk about those things. In other words, I hadn't mm-hmm. valued those voices for more than this thing that they were inextricably tied to by their gender or their skin color. And so in trying to value them, I ended up only valuing them by this one thing. And, um, you know, that, that was something that actually like strongly convicted me to say, and, and to start now being intentional, I've actually brought more people into my team to start planning episodes better, um, in order to avoid that. But that is, that is one thing that, that, um, that I really kind of struggle with and realize like, if I want to do this the right way, I need to, I need to, I can't just be me. And my co-host is, his name is Tony. He's also a white guy. And I was like, it it can't just be the two of us brainstorming how to do this better. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. it's still two white guys determining the future of of this. You see, like, and I was like, it's something that I'm, I'm working through even in my own. And that was something I realized a hundred episodes in three years into something that (laughs) that I started with the very purpose of trying to make this right. And, and so it is. And you played a role in that. So thank you for helping me realize that just in the content that you produce and what you're doing. Um, but I, I'm curious what, um, for an organization that says we want to we value people of color, mm-hmm. what are, I, I guess, like, like the goalposts? Or what are the, businesses and organizations are so interested in metrics, right? What are the, right. What's the definition of, how do we define success here? Um, I guess my question is how can an institution know or a podcast or a church university, whatever, um, how can they know that they're doing this kind of the right way or what are some kind of modes of accountability that they can follow? Well, I think that this goes back to what I was saying about listening to people, right? Is, Mm. you know, are you, are you asking your employees of color what it's like to work there? You know, are you asking yeah. your customers or constituents of color, you know, what is their deepest need? You know, what is, what are they looking for? What do they need? How can you help them? You know, that's one, that's one way. And also the collaboration piece is like you mentioned, you noticed, a, you noticed that a few years in that you had asked mostly white people to be on the podcast. Is that, I think if I remember. Yeah. I had, I, I, yeah. When I have guests on, it would end up mostly being white people. And the only time I would actually end up having people of color or say, or like women on was was to talk about about racism or something like that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. There was, I could think I could name two or three episodes out of, of the ones that have had guests where that wasn't the case. Right. And that was where it like hit me like a ton of bricks. And this is where it's important for us to just realize that like, and I know that, I know that this is hard for some people to grasp, but we all have like, we're all shaped by our environment to some degree, right? But the fact that I grew up in Atlanta in, uh, in a Christian context, mostly as a black person to 
to Jamaican immigrants, you know, all these things, all these things shape the way that I view, I view the world. None of us see the world comprehensively and exhaustively. You know, we all have mm. blind spots. And so that is like the beauty of collaboration, especially when we're collaborating with people who don't share our exact background, is that they can, they're going to have, they're going to lean a certain way that we don't naturally. And so in the conversation between us, you know, some, a woman might tell me, hey, like, you know, that sounds, um, you know, that sounds a lot like the pastor that told me to go home because I'm a woman and I can't preach, you know? Mm. Um, they're going to point that out to me in times when I may not even realize that. And the other thing that they're going to think of is because, okay, we're all also kind of connecting with people that are, that, that we relate to. So a lot of the people that I've read or that I might say, Oh, you got to read this book. You got to listen to this podcast. A lot of them are probably going to be black men. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't do that purposely, but I just, I see someone that, that looks like me and I relate to them in some way. In the same way, there's going to be someone, you know, I have, um, so on my team for Hope and Hard Pills, one of my really good friends, uh, she identifies as non-binary and uh, another good friend also um, identifies as queer. And so they have pointed out, you know, like, Andre, everyone that you've spoken to so far has been uh, cisgender and has been straight and all that kind of stuff, you know? And so I'm like, oh, yeah, you know. You're right about that. I didn't do that purposely. You know, I didn't do that mm. because I hate LGBTQ people. Yeah. You know? um, and that's the value of having people who are collaborating with you who also want to see themselves and identify with people that are like themselves and will bring up subjects and topics and perspectives and angles of even conversations that you're already having that you hadn't thought of. So basically, what I'm saying is you got to bring people into the creative process or to the table for leadership and have, and give them a real say in decisions that you're making um, so that you can actually make those changes. Mm. I love that. I think one of, one of the really, the reason I love this is because um, you know, recently we, we did an episode on the Hong Kong protests. And one of the things that I, mm-hmm. that I really noticed about the Hong Kong protests is you have these millions of people that are protesting and these millions of people were able to identify five, I guess, technically six very, very specifically defined goals that they are protesting for. Like all mm-hmm. of them have very, very specific kind of like you can do this. It's black and white. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I think a lot of I hear this complaint a lot um, from those who kind of disagree with either the racial justice movement or think it's overblown or, you know, dismiss it basically. And the, the, the thing I get is like, they tell me to change. They tell my organization to restructure, but they never actually define that. So I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And all I see is these social media posts or tweet or tweets telling me I'm a terrible person and I need to change, but there's no, there's no actual, like, what do I do? And so I love this because these are very simple steps that can be like, I think incredibly transformative. And I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. So like, it's just kind of elementary beginnings these can be like a hundred percent transformative, like the steps that you've mentioned and they're just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's like some of the things that, so you've mentioned the relevant article and I've talked with a bunch of different people about what kind of changes need to happen at an organization like that. 
And some of the stuff is like common sense, but other things are, you know, they would fundamentally change the organization. You know, if you had, you know, if you had black and brown people who were also weighing in on final decisions about things, then they're going to bring insight to the table that you wouldn't have, you know? And that's fine. And I think that sometimes people, they think about this and they think, well, that is just going to drown out the white voice or that I'm saying that there's something wrong with white people, you know? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I've heard that a lot. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's not what it means. It just means that, you know, when it's just all white, other people get excluded. That's how it's been, you know, in our history, you know, so we have to bring other people to the table so that we can prevent that from happening. Our sensibilities are shaped differently, you know, Mm. because of the bodies that we inhabit in this society. So the way, even the ways that we would respond to that kind of conflict, when you look at the the conflict of, of relevant, I know that you mentioned this in the other episodes, so we don't have to get get into you know all the details. But I noticed on Twitter like the difference in people of color's responses to what should happen, and the difference between like how uh, different white Twitter users were responding to what they think should happen. Mm. You know, it, it's just different, and those things don't have to be a point of tension all the time. They can actually really enrich our decision-making processes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's, let's shift gears now because the, the other side of this is people as individuals. And, yeah. and so the, you know, what do you think this, this really looks like for, for um, especially for white people um, mm-hmm. as individuals? Because, and I'll, I'll give you an example of something that, um, that I've struggled with. Um, and I'll, and I'll, I can give you a very specific example, which is, um, you remember, or did you follow the recent Shane Gillis SNL thing that kind of happened with his Shane Gillis was a comedian. He got, so he got hired by SNL. And then four days later he was fired by SNL because they had, yeah, no, he got, so they, they uncovered these, um, I say they Twitter uncovered, um, his uh, some statements he made on his own personal podcast that were and with his co-host oh. that were yeah incredibly racist to oh, Asian Americans. Come on, okay, go and ahead. the list goes. <laughs> yes, yeah, no. I I'm sorry for the rabbit hole you're going to go down after we're done talking. <laughs> um, so he he gets fired over it, and uh-huh. um and a lot of Asians were going online and saying, and you know celebrities were going online and saying like you know, right move SNL. Great. You should hundred percent have, um, have, you know, he should hundred percent lose his job. Like he shouldn't be given this platform and reward this kind of behavior or, you know, and these kind of beliefs. Right. And then Andrew Yang comes out and says, uh, cause Andrew Yang was one of the people that he actually made fun of in this, uh-huh. in this little rant. And Andrew Yang's like, yeah, I don't think he should have lost his job. I think this is vindictive and punitive. And I think there was actually work to, there was a better way we could have handled this or a different way we could have handled this. Mm. And one of the things that I, that I've, that like, here's, here's a personal thing that, cause this has been a huge journey for me in general over the last several years too. And one of the things I still struggle with is if I'm trying to listen to people of color mm-hmm. and minority, vo- minority voices, mm-hmm. um, it almost 
sometimes feels like a damned if I do, damned if I don't. Because yeah. if the if the people of color disagree with themselves, mm-hmm. I don't. You know, it, it becomes hard to say. And I don't want to just ally with someone only because of them being yeah. a person of color. That's against that. That's kind of antithetical to the whole point of it. But it's yeah. just like I don't know. I, I get caught in the middle. And I think a lot of people feel this way and they don't know how to navigate that kind of tension or that kind yeah. of situation. Well, one tension that we have in our society is that. OK, so one thing that a lot of people don't understand is whiteness is not really just about people's skin tone and pigmentation. Mm. The idea of what it means to be white is a bit more abstract than that. And if you look at history, you can understand that when you look at people like Irish, the Irish and Italians were actually not considered white when they first got here. So, yeah, you know, that, that tells you um, also um, many people who are from like uh, the South um, or North Africa, you know, Swana people, um, many of them have actually been classified as white (laughs) legally. Mm. Uh, in order to wow. keep white people, at, in order to keep white people as a majority in America, so wow. um, whiteness is more abstract than people realize. So I say that to say that everyone in America is actually groomed to be a white person. Um, that's what we do in our schools. That's why we're taught, you know. We're taught a version of history that is incomplete and untrue, that is supposed to shape our minds in order to think within the confines of a white supremacist system. And in that way, we're all we're all expected to abide by those rules and to enact and perform some level of whiteness. So this happens from people of color, too. You know, this is what we're seeing with Kanye West right now is. And, and others like that. So I say all that to say that sometimes, you know, you do look at people of color and you think, okay, wait, like I thought that the right thing was to do A, but you're telling me to do B. <laughs> yes. And, and B sounds like a very, like, B sounds problematic racially, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. B sounds like something pretty white. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, I look for the one that you that 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 is more the one that you almost identify with from the I guess from white from that groomed culture of whiteness almost. I think that there are no easy answers here, right? And so yeah. we, we have to wrestle with it and sometimes we have to sit in the tension of it. But I think that you bring up a very good point that sometimes you can't just look at someone and say, well, they're a person of color. So they know what they're talking about. You know, yeah. like some, what a lot of white people don't realize is that a lot of us black people and people of color, we also have to unlearn the ways of whiteness. We also have to get, mm. we also have to heal from the way that we have internalized white superiority and black inferiority or, or whatever else. So when I hear like the specific example you talked about, like Andrew Yang has a lot of commitments that he has to fulfill, right. As a politician and as a presidential hopeful. So 
he might say a lot of things that someone who wasn't trying to be president <laughs> might. Yeah, absolutely. Say, you know. Yeah, um, if he comes after Shane, then then he just gets accused of basically doing similar to what Donald Trump would do during his election run of like trying of basically sicking his voters and his campaign base on someone or something. Yeah, possibly. And yeah. like, so I, you know, I I definitely saw that, but that was just a very specific example of like. <clears throat> Yeah, what do you what do we do when it almost seems like voices are at odds with at odds with one another? Yeah, I mean we yeah. have to you have to make the best decision that you can, you know, with the information that you have. And that's why it's just so that's why it's so important for white people to take responsibility for their own racial education so that because the more information that you have, the more educated that you are on these on these topics is the the more wisdom you'll be able to have in your decisions. Um so I mean sometimes like sometimes you gotta know also like <laughs> you gotta be able to tell the difference between Django and the and the and the, and the other slave that lives lives in the house oh, with the master, yeah. master you know <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely um okay so one of the man now you may want to watch Django again I haven't seen that movie in forever <laughs> um <laughs> one 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 of the things that I, that I've heard as well, and, and I see a lot, and this is something that even I have felt on occasion is, and, and it's a criticism that's been lobbied at me as a host of this podcast for the, for the reasons that I started it. Yeah. Um, even it, you know, when, when white people try to participate in conversation or try yeah. to advocate for something, then they just get, you know, you've got the white savior complex or, yeah. you know, you don't know what you're talking about and, yep. or, you know, you, and it's, it's, it, you know, someone may be genuinely trying to be an ally in this situation or maybe trying to be a you know, true advocate in this moment. And then they're immediately kicked out or right, immediately yeah. told like, no, in fact, you by by Nate, by definition are now, um, you know, you're just inserting your whiteness into this or you are. Um, and so they don't they're not taken seriously, whatever. And they feel like, OK, cool. Well, I don't you know, if I if I advocate, then I'm called racist for stepping out of. you know, not staying in my lane. Right. Well, and so how do they navigate that? I think that, I think that first off, um, white people can end up in a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situation. If you're always listening to, well, if you're always listening to, well, how are people responding to this? Which there's a balance there where you should be listening to feedback from people of color and Mm -hmm. black people. And you should always take that seriously. So, you know, if you're trying to help and someone tells you that you're not helping, then you should take a beat, listen mm. very deeply, examine what you've done, examine what they said, you know, and sit with that and see, you know, see if you can see what they're saying. Like, but the other thing I think is important, I think, is that white people really need to examine their motivations around doing this kind of work. where. What I say to people is, or what I what I ask people is, why is it that white people want to be allies so badly, rather than just desperately not wanting to be like their ancestors? You know, Mm. like like why is it framed that way? Yeah, yeah, like why you know racism and anti blackness. I think that white people think of it as like. That's people of color's problem, right? And so now I'm going to be a good person and I'm going to concern myself with something that doesn't really 
you know, um, affect me. But if you've been in like an abusive relationship, right? Like um, the battered spouse, like the abuse is only their problem in, in the, in the way, because of the fact that they experience violence because of it, right? It harms them, Mm -hmm. but the abuse is really the abuser's problem, you know? Um, Yeah. And so like, I think that white people need to reframe this around the fact that not saying that all white people are abusers, but that the issue in our society is white supremacy, right? Yeah. White supremacy is white people's problem, you know? Um, even if they're not all Klansmen, you know, because our society is built on this idea of racial hierarchy, why all white people benefit from white supremacy to some extent, you know? Yeah. Even poor whites benefit from white supremacy, just not as much as rich whites do, you know? Yeah. 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 But, yeah. but you know, we all know that like, it wasn't John D. Rockefeller that was like lynching black people back in the day. Mm. You know, it was poor white people lynching black people. And, and you know, um, mm. so anyway, all that to say, like, I do think that motivation is a key thing for, for white people to consider when they want to do this work. And I have a friend who she has a podcast about racism and, there were some black people that really had a problem with it and they were very hard on her. And she, she took some time off and she really thought about what the feedback that she was getting and she was going to end the show. And I respect her for, for dis- for making that decision. Um, but uh, she actually, she has a good friend, a black woman, uh, a black lesbian woman who they've decided to continue doing the show together. You know, where I know that she's going to share power and all that kind of thing. And I also respect that decision, too. There's not like a one size fits all kind of, you know, answer for people, except for like if you're called out by people of color, then listen to them, you know, (laughs) Uh, like seriously consider what they have to say. I think, you know, one of the things that that made me kind of when it happened to me and, and like, let's be honest, this, this happens most of the time. Cause most of the time, a lot of us aren't entering these kind of conversations in person, which is a problem in and of itself. Like these are conversations we should be having face to face too. Um, but it, a lot of it does happen on like, you know, someone joins in on a Twitter thread or a Facebook comment thread in a group yeah. or whatever. And one of the things that this happened to me early on was I had to stop and think like, sometimes they're not necessarily rejecting me specifically. But the anger or what they're responding with or or what they're actually responding to when I joined in on this is, you know, years and years of built up pain, frustration, anger that is starting to come out in this thread. And, um, and so if, if, you know, if they've been rejected and hurt over and over and over again, then the first white person that comes in and says, yeah, I'm your friend. um, (laughs) That's not going to suddenly like, oh, okay, great. Right. Like there there's more there's more to the anger and the frustration and the and the the um the tone that is communicated. And I think instead of just dismissing them as dismissing any voice as just angry, rather than trying to understand why that anger is there is dangerous. 
And yeah, I think it stops I, us from listening. I think you also hit on a very important thing too, where it's like white people very much want to be individuals. Like it's something that is very important to white people to never be just considered a part of a group. But that the reality is y'all exist in a group. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and that group has history, you know? So like, mm. When I was a pastor and I would tell people that I'm a Christian or I'm a pastor, they would have certain feelings about that based on their experiences with religion and with pastors in the church and things that they heard about the Catholic church, even though I wasn't Catholic. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but all of those things are a part of that story for them. And I can't take that away from them. So I can sit there and be like, well, you should look at me as an individual and realize that maybe I'm not like one of those pastors. Or I can just like accept that when when they see me, you know, or when they hear that, like that's what comes up for them and respect it, actually, you know, mm. like, and work around it. So I think that that's that, that you bring that up where it's like. I know that white people, um, I know that it's offensive for white people to even like sometimes hear people say white people because it's like, yeah, I, I have a feeling there's a lot of people that are bothered just by how much we've yeah. said the two. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like you can't you can't paint us all with one brush. And I'm like, well, you know, like there's a guy that, you know, he was he was like he like had a, he was like friends with lions. Like he had a very friendly relationship with them. He was like on YouTube, you go. And he like wrestled with them and play with them. And guess how he died? He got attacked by a lion, you know? Mm. Um, <laughs> like sometimes like you can't expect for us to have so much history with a certain group of people. And to be like, well, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe this line is. Yeah, is right. No, yeah. This this one guy is going to be different than all the maybe rest. this line is a, is a friendly line, you know, because I do know that there's mm. a guy on YouTube that was friends with lions. Like you can't go through the world that way. So, you know, there is suspicion and tension between, you know, uh, white people and communities of color. And it's because that there's a valid history there. And so. White people don't have to walk around with like a scarlet letter on on their chest and feel bad about being identified as white. But but I think that white people should understand that when you enter a space, especially with people of color that you don't know, that that tension might be there and that there's good reason for that tension to Mm -hmm. be there. And so the onus is not on them to assume that you're different from your ancestors. The onus is on you to prove it, you know, to show it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I so. The I, I agree with you 100%. In fact, the thing I was thinking about in this was like, if, if I had a twin brother who was a criminal and walked in and, <laughs> and robbed a bank, right. right? if he walked in and robbed a bank and then I walked into that same bank um, later, that bank would, would respond to me a very certain way, even though mm-hmm. I didn't specifically do anything wrong. Right. But someone who looked like me did. And mm-hmm. I have to prove to them that I'm not that guy. And it's going to be very hard for some people to look past what they see, right? Because what they see has been the thing that has hurt them, right? And and I do think that you know me slowing down and and recognizing that has probably diffused a lot of situations that I probably would have egged on had I not, you know, had I not thought about that. So, you know, that's been huge. Now, one thing, uh, you know, as as we're drawing kind of to a close, uh, first of all, I do want to say thank you for having this conversation. Um, oh, yeah, thanks for I, me. yeah, this has been, this has been awesome. And there's a lot here that even, you know, that I hadn't considered either. Um, one of the, 
one of the things that I know that people of color can get a can get into the trap of is a bunch of people like me inviting them on or inviting them in and saying, Hey, talk about this from the elementary level. Like I could imagine you easily having this exact same conversation a million times. And I hear it on Twitter and Facebook a lot too. Like they're like, I'm just tired of explaining this. Yeah. I'm just tired of having this conversation. Absolutely. So my, so my question is if we were, if we were to ever do a part two, or Mm -hmm. if you were, if you were invited on and said, you know, what is the conversation you want to have? Um, what, what is the level that this conversation should be at, at this point in the game? Um, you know, what, what would be your answer to that? Where, where would you want to see this be? Well, one thing is, is like Dr. King actually complained about this during his lifetime where he said that white people are not really putting in a mass effort to educate themselves on, on race. And I think that right now, like at this point in American history, we have more white people that are interested in learning about being anti-racist than at any point in in American history before. I think that's true. And at the same time, there are so many who are not. Right. And so, (laughs) (laughs) um, and, but we need that to happen. You know, we need for white people to take like this responsibility to get their cousins and and aunties and uncles and everybody, you know, on board with, you know, like not being like their racist ancestors. Um, And so. So I would love so I would love (laughs) I would love for. um, So that's, that's my first thing. Because the conversation that I'm usually having with different people is how do we do something? How do we change this? You know, how can we build the, the human rights movement that we need so that we mm. no longer have to be talking about this um, problem with racism where, where we're starting the conversation at? Does it exist? Is it actually harming people? You know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's where we keep starting the conversation from. Yeah, I'm done having that conversation. I'd love for us to be talking about what do we actually do. But in order for us to know what we can actually do, we have to see the problem correctly. Mm, That's yeah, that's huge. And I, I agree. And that's why I didn't want to have you come on here and try and prove that white institutions are one way or the other too. (laughs) I'm tired of having that conversation too, to be honest. Um, And I think it's, it's almost disrespectful when you, when you finally do know about it to just keep making someone stay at that level, that level, almost that level is almost becoming safe and almost, and it almost feels racist in and of itself to stay there Well, it keeps um, us or to start there every time. It keeps us from having to do anything. Right. Yeah. If, if we can just, if we can just keep sitting around and asking, well, is it really a problem? Is it really that bad? Then we can excuse ourselves from doing anything. And we're running out of time, honestly, you know, like this is mm. this problem really is a threat to our society in a way that a lot of people don't seem willing to acknowledge. Mm. Well, so in, in, in the interest of white people educating themselves and and taking ownership on this, um, the, I just realized that that was probably the worst term I could have used right then and there. Um, (laughs) the, the, um, what are some resources? What are some, other podcasts, what are some books, what are some um, places for people to educate themselves and, and really kind of, um, and, and really take, take it seriously and, and educate themselves. Yeah. Well, 
Yeah, there's so many that like it's hard to even know where to begin, you know, like some of your favorites, you know, um, I mean, one thing that I did so that I could get smarter is just go on Google and Google reading list about racism, (laughs) you know, like, yeah, so, so many of them exist, (laughs) you know, I'm going to put a Google, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. That's just to that search already done. (laughs) It's going to take you straight to the Google search. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, because that's honestly, like I said, just because you're a person of color doesn't mean that you understand how this system works, you know? Mm. And so I had to educate myself beyond just my personal experiences. And that was something that I did. I just looked up reading lists on Google and I found the Equal Justice Initiative, which is a really great resource on several different levels. It's run by Brian Stevenson, and he has a book called Just Mercy that I also that I always think is a good place to start. And um, gosh, yeah, I mean, I think that that would be like a really good place to start is the Equal Justice Initiative. Mm. Cool, awesome, yeah. So yeah, I'll throw links down to all that. Um, that's cool. I've not heard, I haven't heard of that before, so I want to look into that as well. Oh yeah, you should. Um, you love it. Yeah, I I sounds like it. Um so and then let's um obviously I want to give you a chance to replug some of the stuff you you brought up at the beginning, hope and hard pills and the email list and everything. So yeah, and I sure. do know that you have tiers of Patreon as well that are dedicated to some of this. So Yes. Um yeah, on Patreon we so we send out an uncut version of the podcast to some of our users. We have some exclusive content. Like I have an op-ed that I wrote about. So today uh, an op-ed ran in religion news service about Kanye that I wrote, but I had a second one that I wrote that only went out to Patreon supporters. So mm. um, we've, we've watched documentaries together in our Facebook group. Uh, so we oh, watched, wow. we watched Brian Stevenson's documentary and had a discussion about it in our Facebook group and stuff like that. So and we're trying to build some more experiences like like a racism 101 or something like that in our Facebook group as well. Racism 201. Um, I will say, though, that like for people who join like us on Patreon. So there's even like tears to like your commitment, I would think. So like as someone who's just like, I just want to know some more information. Join the mailing list. You'll get articles every week. You can read them. You know, yeah. um, you know, if you want. You know, if you want to connect with some folks on a kind of just like a hopeful kind of level, then my first tier of Patreon is good for that. We have something called Hope Club and it's not really in depth. It's not really intense. It's not really the hard pill stuff. It's just, you know, we're just really connecting in that space. But then above there is where like you're serious about becoming an anti-racist. And so (laughs) we have some it's not like above the it's not academic at all, but it is very like. We're taking we're taking as our ground of of beginning that conversation that racism is a serious problem that we're trying to do something about, you know, and um, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, man. Any final thoughts, anything you want to leave listeners with uh, before we before we sign off? Well, yeah, I would just think that like for for people who like are listening to this conversation probably have some interest in either changing like an organization or institution or figuring out like, what do I do as an individual? I think that one huge like 
the beginning is to really just listen to people, you know, listen to people of color. And I think the best way to begin listening to people, people of color is to get into like a book like Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson or watch the 13th documentary on Netflix or something like that. So that when you actually have conversations with people of color, you're not starting from square one and asking them, can you explain to me what racism is? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, there are resources to find that out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, and to take that posture of just a listener, just be an active listener, you know, no rebuttals and no like argumentation and stuff like that. That stuff is good for white people to learn about racism, but it actually is exhausting for black and brown people to have to go through all all the time, that have to constantly be having the same conversation from square one. So that's the kind of thing I would say is like, take responsibility for learning. Mm, That's huge. Wow. Um, Man, Andre, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, this has been great. I've loved every second of it. And it's my pleasure. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, definitely intend to join one of the tiers of Patreon. Um, so I'm I really excited that. to to kind of jump in further to to this world a little bit more intentionally than than I have been. And um, you know, good luck to you as you continue writing and and producing content in this sphere um, and trying to navigate some of the hate and vitriol that exists within it. Um, and thank you for the work that you're doing in it. And um, I appreciate it. I know there are several others that do, obviously. Um, man, I just uh, know that, you know, me and the team here at Absurdity, I know that you've only talked to me. There is a team of about four of us. Um, <laughs> just know, uh, you know, we're praying for you as you are on this journey as well, man. And thank I'm, you. Um, I'm glad for the work you're doing. So really to our listeners. That. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening and for being a part of this with us. You can check out uh, Andre's uh, links and everything that he's kind of pointed us to in the show notes. Um, and thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Today's episode of Absurdity is sponsored by The Haystack. The Haystack is a voice for young adults in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that produces articles, music reviews, videos, and more. To check them out, go to www.thehaystack.org. The Haystack. Life. Culture. Theology.